0: The Bob Murphy Show, Episode Two Thirty Four. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and
2: economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey,
0: everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, I'm going to be talking with Keith Wiener, Who is the founder, CEO, and chairman of the Board of Monetary Metals, an investment firm that's unlocking the productivity of gold? And we'll talk a little bit in the episode about what he means by that from his official bio here. Keith is an economist who is a leading authority in the areas of gold, money, and credit, and has made important contributions to monetary theory. He is also a serial entrepreneur who specializes in businesses that solve hard problems. And then also, I'll mention. He's the founder and president of the Gold Standard Institute at USA. His work was instrumental in the passing of gold legal tender laws in the state of Arizona in 2017. And he has a PhD from the new Austrian School of Economics. And we talk about that in the beginning of the interview. So just two caveats before we dive in here. One is we were a little crunched for time. It was a confusion over daylight savings. And unfortunately, just the way things played out is this was the, the only way we could get our schedules to work. And the other thing is, it should probably go without saying, but, you know, I asked Keith about his company, but I'm not, like, officially endorsing it or anything. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying because what they do is unique, that's why I asked him to bring it up, but should not be construed as an actual endorsement from me. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Keith Weiner. Keith, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thanks for having me, Bob. So... As I would have explained, the listeners have heard in my introduction to you, I had, I've had had people over time contacting me saying, hey, I get this guy on your show because they're intrigued that, for one thing, can you explain a little bit about what the new Austrian school is, where you did your work and, and your professor there overseeing it?
1: Yeah, so Beckettay was his name. He passed away last year. I'm quite aware that he got into a number of confrontations with a number of folks. Kind of want to distance myself from that a little bit. But basically, goes back to the ideas of Menger and the mm-hmm. idea of bid and ask, and says that this idea of bid and ask needs to be applied to the interest rate. And what do we get if we think of bid and offer in, in the interest rate market? What's the floor and ceiling on the interest rate and how do things work? And um, I think he would call himself an adherent of the quality theory of money rather than the quantity theory that it's not necessarily so that if quantity increases that you get an increase in the price level, but that governments and, of course, central banks do all sorts of things to attack the quality. And then by attacking the quality, that's where all the fun and games occurs. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that just to make sure we, we
0: get it? So what, what would the so quality theory of money entail?
1: So... You know, quantity theory says, okay, we'll add up like how many gold ounces are in circulation or how many dollars or whatever. Quality theory says, and so my personal definition, I'm not sure Dr. Hay would necessarily agree with this, of inflation is the counterfeiting of credit. Mm-hmm. That is, that honest credit has four criteria. There are two on the lender side, which is lender has to be aware he's lending and that he has to agree to lend. And on the borrower's side, there has to be a means to repay and an intent to repay. And of course, with the dollar today, we're missing all four. The average person with a dollar bill in his pocket doesn't have any idea that he's a lender, may actually be decrying the government as spending like a drunken sailor and its credit is, is crap, it has no idea that he's actually lending to the Fed by possessing that Federal Reserve note. And uh, the Fed is lending it to the government. And what is the government doing? Well, they're spending it on welfare. You know, there's a million welfare drains. And so the government is not financing anything productive. It's not increasing production and therefore not increasing its own revenues. How is it ever going to repay? And this argument could be made even before you get to $30 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. $30 trillion in debt, there's a different argument. It's obvious it can't be repaid because if you add it up and you add up the number of taxpayers, you realize the burden is too great. But even before then, it, there's still this counterfeiting to the credit and with each increase in, in borrowing, they call it borrowing, but it isn't really borrowing because it's not to be repaid. There's a degradation in the quality and the whole system is inexorably moving towards you know, sort of a terminal event mm-hmm. that can't go on forever because of, of this counterfeiting If it's simply quantity, say, well, the quantity has been increasing for a long time. Prices have been rising for a long time. There's no reason why that couldn't go on for another 100 years or another 1,000 years. And sure, a 1,000 years from now, you know, the price of a hamburger would be $50,000. So every once in a while, we lock off a zero and, and life goes on. But if you see it as a counterfeiting operation where we're borrowing that we can't repay, eventually you get to the point of insolvency where you can't make a payment when due. And then the whole thing, you know, necessarily has to collapse.
0: Okay, great. So in that exposition there, I think there was just one part that some listeners may not have fully grasped or understood. So you said that the mere act, like if someone's walking around with a twenty-dollar Federal Reserve note in his in his wallet, now do you endorse this view too, or that was just faketties that, that you're implicitly making a loan to the Federal Reserve by yeah, you carrying you his notes credit around? Credit
1: to the Fed, absolutely, yes.
0: Okay, so can you just elaborate on that? Because I think some people are going to say, what, "What do you mean? I didn't I didn't loan anybody money. I traded some labor hours to my employer, and he gave me some Federal Reserve notes. How is that a credit transaction?"
1: Well, that in itself isn't a credit transaction per se, but it gets to the nature of having an irredeemable currency that we all call money. And um, I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of folks about this. And a lot of times it kind of becomes reductive to definitions. Okay. Well, the definition of money is a medium of exchange, and so this is money. But I said, okay, leaving aside the definitional argument, money has got to be a final payment that doesn't represent any counterparty's promise. And that's what we banished. That's what Nixon banished in 1971 from the monetary system being gold. When you get paid in gold, that is a final payment. You have this gold coin or gold bar. You're done. You're out. You've taken your marbles home. And sometimes taking your marbles home is exactly what you want to do if you don't trust the system or you don't like the interest rate or for whatever reason. 1971, Nixon banishes that. It no longer is possible, essentially, to withdraw your marbles. You can trade... These slopes slips of paper with somebody else. But that Federal Reserve note, it doesn't say dollar bill on it, although bill is an old word for credit, it says note on it, and note is a word for credit. Mm-hmm. So if you are extending credit by bidding with your labor, you're supporting the Fed's regime and propping up the value of that dollar. And then as long as you hold that dollar bill, you're a creditor to the Fed. The whole thing is very perverse, I have to make it clear. I'm not one of these MMT guys that takes all this for granted and says, see, it works. It's fine. It's wonderful. Right. Well, it works only in the sense of getting away with it. Like they get away with it for a long time because as Adam Smith says, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. But it's not working. It's, it's destructive. It's perverse. And it's like a pseudo-stable equilibrium in game theory. It continues to go on for quite a while Because even though the participants don't like where we're at, there isn't really any good way. It's not like you can go to your boss and say, start paying me in gold. I want you to set my employment contract to be, you know, 50 ounces of gold per year. And I want a 10-year contract. Your boss is going to say, forget about it. You know, nobody has the pricing power to demand that. So we're stuck with the system and this is is how it works.
0: Okay. Can you talk a little bit about your actual, like what the work that you did? your academic work?
1: So I think probably the most important thing that I did in my dissertation. So I looked at spreads in gold and which is called the gold basis and studied gold backwardation and what that really meant. And I wrote something called when gold backwardation becomes permanent, which is, I think, the the actual failure mode of the dollar. But probably the most important thing I did in my dissertation was look at every time the government interferes in the economy it's always doing so with the promise of improving outcomes. So they set a minimum wage, they set a price cap on rent, they say no gouging, they say, you know, tax this and regulate that and whatever, prohibit this. And always with some hope or a promise of, of an improvement somehow. But what I did was I took a look using spreads as this very interesting tool and said, when an economy is working well and entrepreneurs are allowed to do their thing, then you always have, over time, you have an increase in coordination in the economy. And we can see that increase in the form of spreads decreasing. So I use the example of eggs are produced in some farming town 50 miles outside the city. Let's look at the price of eggs in the farming town and look at the price of eggs in the city center. And if you see that they're dirt cheap in the farm town, they're a penny each, a penny a dozen, and then inside the city center, there's you know $20 for a carton of 12, then there's an incredible disc coordination that it should be really easy for somebody to take a car, drive out 50 miles, get a whole, a whole trunk full of eggs and come back. Mm-hmm. And that arbitrage, that buying the eggs here where they're cheap and selling the eggs here where they're expensive, should compress that spread, bid up the price of eggs over here, push down the price. And so what the entrepreneurs are doing is arbitraging these spreads so that the price of eggs is pretty consistent everywhere. Unless you're in the egg business, you wouldn't really see much of a spread. But every time the government interferes, it is necessarily causing a decrease in coordination. And if you look at it with this calculus of spreads, you'll see how they've you know, caused harm by preventing people from being able to coordinate. And so, you know, for instance, take unemployment. Very curious phenomenon. We have a bunch of people over here that would like a job and are willing to contribute labor in order to get paid. And there's a bunch of people over here that certainly have unlimited wants. There's things that they would like and they're happy to pay something. And somehow there's a gulf between these two groups of people that they're not able to find a profitable way to engage. And that somehow, that something is the government through some sort of tax, through some sort of regulation, through some sort of labor law, through some sort of green energy restriction, some sort of minimum wage, something That's the thing that's keeping them apart. And so what you see is widening spreads in the labor market. You see widening spreads in all sorts of places. And um, that was the essence of what I addressed in my dissertation. So that concept
0: applies specifically to the gold market?
1: Well, the concept of spread applies. Every market, there's Mm. a spread. People think of what's the price of gold. Every live market, there's actually two prices. If you are a seller with urgency, there's a bid price, and that's what you are paid. And if you are a buyer with urgency, there's an offer price, and that's what you must pay. And there's a spread between the two. And that spread can widen or narrow depending on what's going on. So there's that spread, which is an important one. In the gold market, perhaps the most important spread is the spread between spot and futures. So gold metal is trading at one bid and offer, and then futures, each futures contract. So right now, here we are late March, There's an April contract, which is about to come, you know, get into expiry mode. So people will be trading the June contract. You can look at the spread between the price of gold for June delivery versus the price of gold in the spot market. And there's some very interesting things that one can glean by studying that. Okay, very interesting. So speaking of of gold, of course,
0: that's your main business. So do you want to just explain the basics? So you're the CEO and chairman of monetary metals and do you want to just explain a little bit about what's sort of interesting about your, your, uh, what you guys do?
1: Yeah. So a lot of people realize that gold is the thing that they should turn to because the dollar is, in my argument, untrustworthy and obviously also losing purchasing power. So regardless of which path, you know, you arrive at, you come to gold and say, I should own some of this as a hedge in my portfolio and stocks are crashing Gold may be going up. There's a lot of different reasons that people have. But a funny thing happens along the way, and that is it becomes all about the gold price. They buy gold and want it to go up, and then what do you do when it goes up? Well, then you sell it and get more dollars. But you bought the gold to get out of dollars in the first place. So you really want more of them? Mm-hmm. But that speculation... So I, I make a, um, a distinction between investment and speculation. And that is investment. You're financing something productive. So a factory manufactures, I don't know, webcams, or wants to manufacture webcams, and they need to borrow a million dollars to buy the equipment and tools to manufacture these camera devices. So you lend them the money and they pay a certain interest rate, and the profit to the investor comes out of the profit from the new production, from the new webcams that come on the market. And so that's the engine of civilization itself. In speculation, you're not financing anything, you're buying an asset, and then the profit comes from, when you sell the asset to another speculator, you sell it hopefully at a higher price. The profit comes from the capital or the wealth of the next speculator. So speculation is an engine for conversion of one party's capital into another party's income to be consumed. So there's a, sort of a prodigal son or prodigal society analogy to this. And people try to do this with gold, they try to do this with silver, more recently Bitcoin is probably taken some of that trade. It's more popular to do with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is far better than gold at skyrocketing. Also crashing, but um, Mm -hmm. certainly skyrocketing. What we're doing is saying, let's use gold to finance something productive. Every jeweler, every refiner, every mint, every bullion dealer, they're high-tech manufacturers who have seen mirrored sunglasses that have a thin layer of gold. These are businesses that use gold in the business, need to finance that and it makes more sense for them to finance it in gold than in dollars. And we gather the gold from investors that own the gold. And instead of them having to pay for storage, which is typically about 0.75% a year, they're getting paid 2 or 3% interest to lease the gold to these companies that are using it for something productive. And so what we're trying to do is bring gold back into circulation as a general medium. And the control valve that governs gold circulation and gold standards—the interest rate. As the interest rate falls, you get less and less circulation, lower and lower velocity. At a zero interest rate, gold cannot circulate. It becomes the dry asset that we've all heard Warren Buffett talk about. Gold is useless; it has no utility. We pay guys to dig it out of the ground. We pay more guys to put it back in the ground. Stand around guarding it. It's neither productive nor procreative. He said a lot mm-hmm. over the years about it. Gold becomes a dry, unproductive asset at zero percent interest. My hypothesis as an economist, I don't really consider myself to be an academic. I consider myself to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. My first business was a software company, which I sold in 2008. Now I'm building monetary metals. I consider myself to be an entrepreneur. So I turned my academic hypothesis into a business model hypothesis. And that is the gold will come out for interest. And uh, it turns out to be absolutely true. And it's, it's growing exponentially. Okay, very interesting. And so
0: from the people that give you control of their physical gold and then they're getting earning an interest per return, that's denominated in weights of gold?
1: In weights of gold, that's right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Ironically, dollar and all these other things, obviously pound sterling, these all used to be weights. And the government got a hold of these words and you know, some Orwellian twist, you know, dollar now means irredeemable credit of a central bank it used to be X number of grains of either silver or gold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How, you know, everything is perverted. So, so far they haven't perverted ounce or gram. And right. so we're, we're safe right. at the moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's something I stress when I explain to people like the history of the gold standard in the US. I think, and I think I used to think like this as well until I did more research that, oh, so back in the day, the government like pegged the dollar to gold or, you know, and it was like, no, it was more like it defined like, in the same way that that you know a foot equals twelve inches, just to you know ensure weights and measures, so that commerce could you know have units to put in contracts. That yeah, that like the dollar, like you say, originally was defined as a certain physical weight of gold or silver. It wasn't like a, it was a monetary policy. It was more just like no, these I, are the I, units.
1: I'm smiling and half chuckling because I moderated a debate at Freedom Vest between Warren Coates and Gene Epstein should we abolish the Fed and go to a gold standard? And of course, you'd have seen Warren Coates, central banker to the central bankers, said no. And, you know, Coates was awarded his PhD. I believe Milton Friedman was the chair of his dissertation committee. He's very much, you know, mainstream, you know, guy. He and I had a long argument on site that continued an email for weeks afterwards, where he thought that, you know, going back to 1792, that it was a monetary policy that fixed the price of gold could not grasp. I could not, I did not possess the words to communicate what you just said in a way that he could hear it. Yeah. (laughs) We basically disengaged with him still believing that the government had a monetary policy that was a price-fixing policy. And um, I I imagine to this day, still, that's what he thinks.
0: Right. Well, there was, I think Milton Friedman did contribute to that confusion himself. He had an essay, I think it was in Capitalism and Freedom, but it, it might've been one of his other books. But yeah, where he was arguing in favor of freely floating currencies and you know saying hey we don't want the government to fix the price of coffee why would we want them to fix the price of you know francs or what you know this is before the euro mm-hmm. and i remember what i was a teenager I was like oh yeah that makes sense and then of course i got into rothbard who explained that well no if each of the governments is defining their sovereign currencies as a certain weight of gold let's say then it kind of pins down So it's not a price control. It's just more like arbitrage would keep it within those limits. You would be stupid to trade well outside the band of the so-called fixed exchange rate if each government is redeeming its currency in the respective
1: weights of gold. Right. Well, if they were all defined as gold, right, then the whole problem, it's like it's a problem that's an artificial problem that comes as an artifact of a redeemable currency system that if we actually had a free market and government wouldn't be the issue of the currency anyway, it would be Mm -hmm. private banks then the problem goes away. You don't have foreign exchange volatility because gold, an ounce of gold is the same anywhere in the world. Yep, yep. And then each credit redeemable in gold might have a different price depending on the market's assessment of that issuer's credit. So if somebody starts to go down, you know, it's like in the bond market today, you see somebody's bonds are trading at 78 cents on the dollar and you say, uh-oh, those guys are in trouble, right? And they're you know, no longer money good. Mm -hmm. Normally it would be 100 cents on the dollar. Are you still involved with the uh, Gold Standard Institute? Yeah, I I haven't done a lot. So I founded a 501c3 nonprofit called the Gold Standard Institute, and I founded a for-profit called Monetary Metals, Mm -hmm. both of whom were intended to be different, you know, tongs like on a a pincers to try to help the world rediscover gold. And the Gold Standard and the 501c3 nonprofit was about education and outreach. And the for-profit is about, you know, let's get interest on gold. And so I have to say one other thing about the for-profit, which is I think a good working definition of the gold standard is when anybody wants to, the key is choice. You don't have to. There's no government law that says deposit your gold. It's illegal to have it in your house or whatever. But anybody who chooses to can deposit their gold and earn interest on it. If that condition is true, you have a gold standard. And so that's what monetary metals is trying to bring about. There's a why to this gold finance business. And um, the Gold Center Institute was about education and outreach. And so I've, I've written quite a lot of material on the education outreach side. I got involved in helping legislators here in Arizona, but also in Texas and Utah and Wyoming and a bunch of other places that you know, I had you know, calls and briefings and testimony and all kinds of stuff that I tried to do to get politicians to pass you know, at the very least, a law that repeals the capital gains tax on gold, which is one of the most pernicious things Mm -hmm. that they have.
0: Well, yeah, I'm glad you, that's what I wanted to ask in in terms of this, you know, as we're, as our time is winding down here, just the last big topic is, can you explain to the listeners, like, what are some of the, because you mentioned before, like, oh, it it would be hard to go to your boss and say, hey, can you just pay me in, in gold? And so some people say, well, why? Like, you know, it's, what's the problem? Like, aren't there a bunch of employers now who, you know, are fans of the Austrian school or whatnot, or, or could be made to be such? And we, you know, what, what institutional regulatory or tax constraints are in place to make it impractical right now for a sudden so, conversion of, to using have, gold? You have
1: to differentiate between if your salary is in dollars and you want your boss to provide the service of converting, exchanging the fixed amount of dollars, which is your salary, to whatever amount of gold can be purchased at the then current gold price, you essentially your boss going to the coin shop and buying coins for you and handing those over. Mm-hmm. Okay, anybody could do that. That's it's a matter of adding, you know, different payment option as a benefit. And if that became popular, I mentioned some coin shops would approach big employers and say, "We can help you do this." Versus actually fixing your salary not as a matter of dollars, but as a matter of ounces. Mm-hmm. And the problem is the price risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody knows what the price of gold's going to be tomorrow. And if it's $3,000, that means your boss has just given you a 50% raise. So you get out of line with the market, and that's a really bad deal for your boss. At some point, if you get too far above market, your boss is going to have a, a greater pressure to lay you off. And conversely, in the other direction, if the gold price were to drop to $1,200 again, not that I think that's likely, but it could happen. And if it did, you're now working significantly below market. Your boss would have to assume you're going to quit and find another job. So there's so many, you know, it's not even really a legislative problem, but there's so many network effects and economic law like this that really don't make it practical for anybody to price long-term contracts of any sort in gold. And that's where there's an enormous amount of work to be done, you know, to move in that direction. But having payroll in gold would, would not be one of the first things as I would order it.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: okay, well, fair enough. And I'm glad you did say, because that's, That's actually my answer too. When some people would, like I do have a talk at the Mises Institute and somebody would ask, oh, do they pay you guys in gold? And I kind of said, well, you did that. Well, no, if they did, I would have to go sell the coin. You know what I mean? Like, because my landlord right now doesn't take gold as payment and things things like that. And if I wanted to invest in more gold coins this month, I could do that anyway. You know, So those are two separate issues. But you did mention like the capital gains problem. So can you just explain how that's a constraint?
1: Yeah, I wrote an article for Forbes talking about this and the tax on gold. Okay, it's it's annoying. You know, if the price of gold goes up, that's annoying and painful. You have to pay tax on it. But even worse, if you're really trying to use it as a medium, is the reporting and record keeping that you would have to do to be fully compliant. And yeah, a lot of people emailed me after that article and said, you know, people can just cheat on it. I'm like, well. If you want to go do that, go do that. I certainly can't write in Forbes and encourage anybody to cheat or on a podcast for that matter. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be compliant and, and obey the law and stay on the right side of the prison door, you have to record every gold coin you got, what the date was and what the price of gold was. And then if you spend that gold coin, you say, okay, Mr. Landlord, my rent is about 1900 bucks this month. Here's 1900 bucks. Well, you'd have to report on your tax Effectively, that barter transaction is treated as a sale of gold at the market price for that day. Mm-hmm. You'd have to record that. You'd have to know what coin that was, where it was in your inventory. Are you using a first in, first out, a last in, first out? What inventory systems do you have? And then record that, keep all those records and be prepared to show those records to the auditor when he comes, which I imagine if you're doing that, probably we'll, we'll get him on at some point. And so the record-keeping becomes even more onerous than paying the tax, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people are even equipped to keep records like that? Right. You know, you get coins, you keep them in those sleeves, you buy another one, you just add it to the sleeve. You don't know, oh, this is that coin from March 25th mm-hmm. or whatever.
0: So in my understanding, is, is this correct? That even if you, so it seemed like it was a sort of a coordination problem. And I know in the crypto world, you know, that's part of the problem. People trying to get people to adopt Bitcoin and it's the kind of thing where, you know, like you say, a network effect that if something's to become a generally accepted medium of exchange, it's hard for just one or two people to to start using it. Like it's, you know,
2: right. But exactly. is, is
0: what you're getting at. Like, even if you could, like if there was some whole city somewhere that everybody did switch over and 90% of their daily transactions were using gold. So that sort of gets away from the risk you were talking about that, oh, all the workers get paid in gold coins, but everything at the store, you can, you know, just use gold for. And so if that little city largely adopted gold as its money, if they were still embedded in the U.S. tax and regulatory framework, technically, from the perspective of the IRS, it would look like, oh, you know, when you sold your labor hours for gold, we should have looked at what was the dollar price of gold that day. And then if the dollar price of gold went up from when you took that coin to go buy That's groceries, right. even from your point of view, is no, I got paid, whatever, you know, but an ounce of gold for the week. And then I went and spent an ounce of gold on my utilities and groceries and whatever. So to me, there was no capital gain. But if the dollar price fluctuated, then they would say there was a, a capital gain. Oh yeah, even, mm-hmm. even during
1: a week, I mean, the price of gold could move $50, $60. Right. So you'd have that. So yeah, if you wanted to build that city, you would have to be outside the US, either one of those like economic development zones like Honduras has, or one of those floating offshore things that the libertarian community is always talking about. But even then, the problem is you're importing food and energy and all these things from external markets All of those things are financed in dollars. So the farmer is financing his wheat by borrowing dollars from the bank. The oil companies are borrowing dollars. All that trade is financed in dollars. And so they need to get paid dollars in the end. So even if you had a whole city where everybody agreed, let's amongst ourselves trade in gold, all the raw materials and all the manufactured goods that you're importing have to be priced in dollars. And so you're back to the same. The network effect is enormous as not to be underestimated or dismissed with you know with hand-waving mm-hmm. as sometimes the bitcoiners do that's an enormous challenge to get over well I, I agree well with
0: that somber note i think it makes sense for us to wrap up the interview my guest has been keith Weiner, folks i'll provide links is that forbes article still up there if you offline do you think we can find that Absolutely. I'll email you at that link. All right. Yeah. So folks, go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 234 for links to all the things Keith has been working on and including that article. Keith, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.